right? Proclaiming him as we go out, making much of him in our daily lives. That should be where we find true and ultimate joy. So let's go on. Uh, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to go back through this slowly. So starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, first, let's see what the therefore is there for, right? So uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is pretty uh, a pretty familiar passage. It's uh, famously known as the hall of faith, right? We have all these people from the Old Testament who, who did these things by faith, right? We see that, that really the author of Hebrews is telling us they were saved by their faith, not by the things they did, not by the sacrifices they made. They were saved much like we are saved today, right? Only by our faith in Christ, right? The difference was they were looking forward to the coming Messiah, and we look back at the Messiah who has already come. So we have these things like, by faith, Abel, these people, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, right? By faith, Noah, by faith, the, the people of, of Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry line by faith, by faith, right? We see this, this hall of faith. We see these people who, who are believing in God and trusting in God, and they've run this race, and this is the point that the author of Hebrews is telling us. And I, I love how he ends um, chapter 11, starting in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should be not be made perfect. Right? The author of Hebrews, the, the point that he is trying to get across is something is better, something is greater, and that's Jesus. Right? If you could sum up the book of Hebrews in three words, it really would be Jesus is better. Right, and, and that's the point he's getting, that Jesus is better than all those things. Jesus is better than having comfort. Jesus is better than not being sawn in two. Jesus is better than not being beheaded. Jesus is better than whatever else, than torture and suffering and pain and death. Jesus is better than those things. Jesus is worth those things. And so then he comes on to chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the picture that the author of Hebrews is trying to draw for us here is is this picture of this Colosseum and this race, right? Especially in ancient Greece, sports were a big thing, right? And, and particularly Olympic sports is where we get many of our Olympic sports, like running. They would have races, foot races, where they would run around and see who was the fastest, right? Who could complete these, these athletic feats? And so uh, it, this picture is this Colosseum with this great cloud of witnesses watching these people run. Right. The difference is when we think of most sporting events, we think of people who don't play those sports or have never played those sports watching a bunch of people who are really good at those sports. Right. But, but the author of Hebrews flips this around and he says, right, all these people that we have just talked about, 
We're surrounded by them. This great cloud of witnesses watching us as, as we finish this race, right? This race that they have already run, that they have already finished, right? So, so Moses has already completed his race. Abel, right? Noah, that's the point he's making. David, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, right? And we could go on. People who have passed on before us, uh, Jonathan Edwards, Billy Graham, George uh, Whitfield, right? Whoever else, right? As, as we, we go on, Charles Spurgeon, these people who have gone on before us, we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses watching us as we race, as we run with endurance. And that's the picture that the author of Hebrews is, is making for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay us Aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Something we must see here is Christian, first of all, this is talking about us, those who are in Christ, but it still says, right, sin, lay aside weight and the sin which clings so closely. Sin is a reality in the life of every believer, right? We, we, we do not all of a sudden, once we, we come to know Christ and get baptized, we do not all of a sudden lose our propensity for sin. We do not all, all of a sudden lose our bent towards sin. Now Christ covers us in his blood and he makes us new and he begins this work of sanctification within us. But sin is still a daily struggle in our lives. Right? We still struggle with sin. Unfortunately, church, we act too often like we don't. Right? And that's, that's one of the worst things about Sunday morning, about coming in and pretending like everything is okay and pretending like we don't have any problems, right? Is, is that we tend to put on this mask. Like nothing is wrong. I don't struggle with sin. I'm not struggling with these things throughout the week. So I'm going to box this up in this, this little package and I'm going to hide it away. Right? Believer, we still struggle with sin. That's why we're called to, to gather together. Right? That's why James tells us to confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. Right? We, we are called to be people who are confessing to each other, who are loving each other, forgiving each other, praying for one another. And, and too often we've turned church gatherings into something where we, we hide this mask. Uh, we hide behind this mask and, and just pretend like everything's okay. Pretend like we don't struggle with sin. That's not a reality. I know this heart still struggles with sin. And I have to constantly pray about the anger and the bitterness and the lust that is within my heart. Believer, that is a reality for each and every one of us. And, and the author of Hebrews is telling us, throw those things off. Right? Throw sin off. Cling to Christ. Run with endurance. And who do we run to? Who do we keep our eyes on? Verse 2 tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So believer, yes, we still do battle sin, but we look to Jesus, who is the starter and the finisher of our faith. I love that. He is the Founder, right? He is the one who founded the faith. It was, it is him who the, the Christian faith is built on. Completely him. Not a decision we made. Not anything we did. But Christ and his sacrifice and his ability to change us and to make us new. Christ and Christ alone. He's the founder and he's the perfecter. He's the one who will keep us to the end. Christian, do you, do you want to know if you will be kept until the end? Right? If you are in Christ today, you will be kept towards the end because Christ is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Christ is the one who keeps us 
to the end, as Jude tells us in, at the end of, of his book. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, honor, and power before all time, now and forever. Amen. And, that, and that's, that's Jude telling us Jesus is keeping us. Jesus is holding on to us. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. No, no, so we look towards Christ as we run with endurance. And Christ was looking towards something, right? Not towards the cross, but he was looking for the joy that was set before him. And because of that, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was not looking at the displeasure of the cross, right? The cross was was bloody and gruesome, and, and we saw this, this picture of it before he even went to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's looking upon the cup of God's wrath before him, sweating drops of blood, right? We see the, the pain and agony Jesus is going through. But according to Hebrews, Jesus was not looking at the displeasure of the cross, but rather at some greater joy, right? And that greater joy was... The, the salvation of his people and the glory of his father. Right? So Jesus was not looking at the displeasure of the cross, but at the joy of the salvation of his people, right? The reason why he went to the cross and the glory of the father. That was the greater joy that was set before him that Christ looked at. And this should set an example, a model for us. As we suffer and as we continue on through this text, we'll see suffering is actually a good thing. As we suffer, as we go through difficulty and pain, we don't look, we don't focus, like Christ did not focus on, on the momentary pain, but on the greater eternal joy that is before us. And that is Christ and Him alone. He said, again, He for the, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now Christ conquered Satan, sin, and death, and is seated. Right? This, this should make us shout with joy more than the Red Sox winning the World Series or anything else. Right? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God with pleasures in his right hand forevermore, according to Psalm 1611. In fact, hold your fingers in Hebrews 12 and go over with me to Psalm chapter 16. And we're going to read the, the whole chapter today. As we focus on Bible reading and, and particularly going through the New Testament together the rest of this year, we're going to uh, focus on some scripture reading this morning because that's so much more important than what I have to say. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And here's, here's where this really points to our text in Hebrews. You make known to me the, paths, the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand pleasures are forevermore. Right. So think about that word picture that David is using there. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And according to Hebrews 12:2, who is at the right hand of God? Jesus. Right. 
So according to Psalm 16, where are pleasures found forevermore? In Christ, right? Christ and Christ alone. Only Jesus brings true pleasure. Only Jesus brings true joy. Nothing else that we cling to, that we grasp to in this world will bring pleasure or joy or fulfillment. Christ and Christ alone brings pleasure. In his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's go on to back in Hebrews 12. <clears throat> Let's go to verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Again, the, uh, the focus of our eyes as we run this race called life is on Christ. As believers, we don't focus on our careers. We don't focus on the money we make. We don't focus on retirement. We don't focus on even our families or our spouses or, or whatever. We focus on Christ and Christ alone running towards him, knowing that only he brings fulfillment, only he brings joy, only he brings true, eternal, lasting pleasure. Focusing on him. This year we're going to face difficulties, right? As, as much as we want to have this hopeful attitude going into 2019, as much as, as every year we, wants, we want to have this hopeful attitude, yes, I'm going to accomplish these things, I'm going to do these things. The reality of life is, as life pulls us back down to earth, the reality is we're going to face difficulties. We're going to face hardships. You may face heartache. You may face the loss of a loved one. You may face something difficult. You may face cancer or a child dying or something difficult. That's the reality of it that we may face. But we look to Christ. We don't look to those things. We look that to, to him knowing that only he satisfies. Right? Only Christ will satisfy. Only Christ will bring pleasure and comfort and joy. No amount of money does that. <clears throat> I'm reminded of that constantly. Just last night I was reading in Ecclesiastes uh, about just the, the displeasure of people who have a lot of money, right? Focusing on the money, always wanting more and grasping more. We are a people, especially here in America, who hunger and thirst and crave and lust for money. And we think that's going to bring us fulfillment and joy. And I've seen that time and time again. I've had that in my own life. I've, I've seen that firsthand from friends and family. And it never satisfies. It always leaves you wanting more. We think comfort, that new house or that new car or that new career or, or that new place to live or whatever will bring us joy and satisfaction. But it doesn't. It always le leaves us grasping for more. Right, as, as the author of, of Psalm 16, David said there, we're, we're, we're worthless. We cling for, to worthless idols and, and it leaves us broken. It leaves us hurting. Right? It leaves us sad, more sad than before. Clinging for worthless idols. <clears throat> Let's continue on. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So apparently this, this church that the author of Hebrews was writing to, none of them had been persecuted to the point of death yet. Um, of course, if we read earlier on in Hebrews, some of them had gone to prison, some of them had been robbed, and, and had these things happen to them, but none of them had gone to the point of death yet. So the author of Hebrews is telling them, in your struggle against sin, you haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. But I, I think there's something greater that he's saying there. Right? Like in our struggle against sin, and, and that is something we as believers do struggle against sin. We haven't yet to the point shedded our blood. And as far as I know, no one in here has died or been beaten for the sake of the gospel. So we have not shedded, shed our blood uh, for, for our struggle against sin. But Christ did. Right? Like there's a greater picture here. 
We, in our struggle against sin, have not shed our blood. But Christ shed his blood for our sin. Christ suffered and died and rose again, shedding his own blood for our sin. Christ has already done the work, knowing that we could not. The focus is completely on him again. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the one who holds us. Jesus is the one we keep our eyes on. Jesus is the one that we consider. Jesus is the one who shed his blood for us. Jesus is the one who will keep us to the end. Christ is the one who will satisfy us. Christ is the one who will bring us true pleasure. Him and him alone. Let's continue on to verse 5. And you have, for, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he quotes Proverbs here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Right? I think this is so interesting, and I know many of you may disagree with me on this, but where, where Christ, or where the author of Hebrews is talking about suffering for the sake of the gospel and suffering against sin and maybe even being put to death, and then all of a sudden he relates that to the discipline of the Lord, that shows that, that Jesus is in complete control. Like, even in your suffering, Jesus isn't standing up there saying, man, I wish I could do something about this. Jesus might be the one causing you to suffer because he is disciplining you. In fact, if we believe that Jesus is completely sovereign and in control of all things, he is the one causing you to suffer. Because he loves you that much, right? That's what Hebrews, don't argue with me, argue with Hebrews. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. The whole reason why the author of Hebrews is telling us to endure, endure through suffering, endure through persecution, endure through pain, is for discipline. Because Jesus is disciplining us. He's producing some kind of holiness within us, some kind of righteousness within us that only he can do. Right? Only Christ can do this work in us. So the author of Proverbs and then Hebrews uses this, this picture of this father and the son, right? A father only disciplines a son because he loves him, right? And sometimes, of course, as, as wicked, evil fathers as we are, we, we discipline out of a lack of love or out of anger. But Christ, so much more, only disciplines out of uh, us because of love, right? We know that God loves us when he disciplines us. As a loving father disciplines his son, Right? Discipline is, is something that our culture often struggles with. Um, our culture is one which shuns discipline. So this, this example is uh, often difficult to understand. But God loves us too much to let us cling to lesser joys. Right? God loves us too much to let us run to idols that will not satisfy us. Right? Too often we question, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you, why are you doing these, uh, or allowing me to suffer or whatever? And we don't look at the whole reason why, because God is producing something within us to make us more like Himself, because He knows that's so much greater than letting us live in our filth, in our mire, in our, in our muck. Right? My two-year-old does not like when I spank him. But I'm spanking him because I, I love him, and I love him too much to allow him to continue to live in his disobedience. And we, like two-year-old baby Christians, cry and, and moan when God disciplines us, but we do not see the greater picture that, that God is making and producing this holiness within us to make us more like himself in a way that only he can, 
And sometimes that takes suffering and discipline and pain, and that's something that we should rejoice in and we endure, as Hebrews 12.7 tells us. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you don't suffer, if you don't go through pain, if you do not go through discipline, you should probably ask yourself, are you really even a child of God? Are you really even in Christ? Are you following Christ? Because if you're not, you're an illegitimate son, as Hebrews 12 tells us. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may, what does it say there? Share his holiness. The point of of Christ's discipline, of Christ uh, producing something within us, is so that we may share in his holiness. So that we may become more like Christ. The beauty of Christ is in his goodness and holiness. I'm, I'm going to read a quote to you from Jonathan Edwards' book, The Religious Affections. It's quite a long quote, but listen along. As the beauty of the divine nature does primarily consist in God's holiness, so does the beauty of all divine things. Herein consists the beauty of the saints, that they are saints or holy ones. It is the moral image of God in them which is their beauty, and that is their holiness. Herein consists the beauty and brightness of the angels of heaven, that they are holy angels and so not devils. Herein consists the beauty of the Christian religion above all other religions, that it is so holy a religion. Herein consists the excellency of the word of God, that it is so holy. As Psalm 119, 140 says, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Verse 128, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Verse 138, thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. Verse 172, my tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteous. Psalm 19, 7 through 10, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Herein, Edwards continues on, herein does primarily consist the amiableness or friendliness and beauty of the Lord Jesus, whereby he is the chief among 10,000 and altogether lovely, even that he is the Holy One of God and God's holy child and he that is holy and he that is true. All the spiritual beauty of his human nature, his meekness, lowliness, patience, heavenliness, love to God, love to men, condescension to the mean and vile, and compassion to the miserable, all is summed up in his holiness. And the beauty of his divine nature, of which the beauty of his human nature is the image and reflection, also primarily consists in his holiness. Herein primarily consists the glory of the gospel, that it is a holy gospel and so bright an emanation of the holy beauty of God and Jesus Christ. The beauty of Christ is truly in his goodness and his holiness, according to what Jonathan Edwards is saying there, according to what Scripture tells us. Holiness is a good thing. It's something that our world and our culture has taught us to, to flee from, right? And, and we tend to pit holiness and grace against each other as if they're two separate things. But that's not a picture that Scripture gives us. Scripture gives the grace of Christ that Jesus shows us because of our wretchedness, because of our filth. And, and it also gives us a picture of him creating and producing a holiness within us 
so that we may become more like him, right? So that we should not go on sinning so that grace may increase, as Romans tells us, right? So that we become more like Christ because the beauty of Christ is in his holiness. It is in his goodness. And we should desire to become more like God, not more like the world. So scripture calls us to. Let's continue on. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The goal of God's discipline is for us to share in his holiness, bearing the fruit of righteousness, becoming like Christ. Right? That's the entire goal of Jesus' uh, discipline so that we would become more like him, so that we would bear the fruit of righteousness, so that we would share in his holiness. That is a good thing. Jesus' grace allows us to walk as Jesus walked. Jesus' grace allows us to share in his holiness. Jesus' grace and oftentimes discipline allows us to become more like him, to be able to bear the fruit of righteousness. To become more like Christ is something that we should desire, that we should yearn for. That's why we constantly read Scripture. That's why we constantly should spend time in prayer. That's why we should constantly have spiritual conversations focusing on Christ and Christ alone. And so how do we battle joylessness and weariness? Because that's really what we're battling here, right? A lack of desire to to follow Christ, to be made holy, to be made new in his image is is a lack of joy, right? It's, It's a looking to other things for joy. And it's a weariness, right? That's what, in verse 3, consider him who endured from such from sin such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So how do we battle joylessness? How do we battle weariness? By looking to Christ, by focusing on Christ, by focusing on his word, daily looking to the beauty of Jesus in his word. That's why it's so important that we daily preach to ourselves, daily preach the gospel to ourselves, daily get alone with God. Read his word. Beg that he would make us more like him. Beg that he would continually change us. Beg that he would show us his glory. And that's why uh, together, church, as, as a church, we're going to go through the New Testament together, which is really not that much um, to go through the New Testament together in a year, but it's so important and such a great starting point that we focus on Scripture. And so today, as, as we're about to end, I, I love to end this way by shutting up and reading God's word, which is so much more important than what I have to say. And so go with me. We're going to read a couple different texts today. Go with me to Psalm 119. We're not going to read the whole thing. Don't worry. But we are going to read some select texts. Again, focusing on the beauty and glory of Christ, the reason why we find joy in Jesus and Jesus alone is because he's the only thing that satisfies. He created us that way. He made us that way. <clears throat> so Psalm 119, starting in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up in your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much in, as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Go to verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. 
I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Flip over with me now to Romans chapter 8. I know a few months ago as I preached that end by reading this text, and it's what we're going to do again. If I had to pick a favorite chapter in the Bible, it'd probably be this one. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read the whole thing. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to send the mind, set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things, including suffering and pain and death and, and persecution, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This new year, don't put your hope in fleeting pleasures or temporary pain. Right? Too often we tend to look as, as I lost my focus on baseball, looking at the misery of daily practice, we look to, we tend to look at either the misery of our daily life or, or the joys of our fleeting life, right? Temporary joys that satisfy us for a moment, but will not satisfy us eternally. Don't look at those things in this new year, Christian. Look to something greater. 2019 is not our hope, right? 2020 is not our hope. Uh, more money, a better career, a better house, a better spouse, a better family, whatever, is not our hope. A better king is our hope, and that's Jesus. A king who is greater and mightier than anything else, and he's the only king who's ever died for you, for your soul. Jesus is better. Look to the beauty of Jesus and what he has done for you, is doing for you, and will do for you. Let's pray. Dear the Father, God, thank you that you are awesome and mighty and wonderful and glorious.